Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello there, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, the show where I search out some top audio storytelling from all over the world, then share all the best of what I hear with you. Coming up today, the unique, award-winning and genre-defying Have You Heard George's Podcast. Then... Part bizarre, part macabre, part savage, part maudlin, there is nothing much like it upon the contemporary scene. Rediscovering the joy of neglected books in Backlisted. After that, conversations with people who hate me. It engineers uncomfortable encounters between online haters and their targets. I've spoken to people who have called me a piece of shit, a moron, a talentless hack, and yes, a faggot. Finally, words to that effect is a brainy look at the way big ideas get explored in our books, poems and films. Dinosaurs are alive, vividly depicted in all our imaginations. Their distinct colours, the sounds they make, what they eat, how they move. Except, of course, that nobody, nobody has ever seen a dinosaur. And next time you hear something good, then please do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at rnzpodcasthour. How can you use the podcast as a vehicle for social change? That's the question George and Panga, aka George the Poets, intrigued by in the unique Have You Heard George's podcast? Blurring the lines between music, social commentary, poetry, journalism and fiction, the show's just cleaned up at the British Podcast Awards, winning five golds, including Podcast of the Year. George, well, he's 28. He's born and raised in London of Ugandan heritage. He studied at Cambridge University and one of his spoken word poems introduced the BBC's coverage of the royal wedding last year. But he started thinking a bit more about the long form possibilities offered by podcasts and spent a whole year in the studio with his collaborator and co-producer Ben Brick, crafting eight episodes of the show and crafting It's the right word. It's weaving together specially composed music, multiple voices, time shifts, immersive sound design. You'll hardly even notice he's writing everything in rhyming couplets. The show takes on some meaty topics too. Policing, institutional racism, teacher shortages, and in a memorable episode, the Grenfell Tower fire. The 72 people who died in this multi-storey London tower block in June 2017 get remembered through the character of B, a young teacher. Here she's leaving phone messages with George while he's out performing somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> Not going to lie, I'm a little hater sometimes, but your performance was so entertaining. That poem's amazing. It's like no one in the audience blinks. Thank you. 
Would you like to order some drinks? By the way, do you actually know what floor I live on? You better do. Because I'm not telling you. <laughs> anyway, I'm kind of tipsy. Sipsy. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're taking too long. I've got to tell you what the deputy head said. Imagine, yeah, he basically said I should find work in a crew. I'm thinking, do you know how lucky you are that I am working with you? He was like, yeah, you might call me anal. And I was like, yeah, because you're an ass. My head's spinning, my head is spinning, babe. I wish you were here right now. What am I supposed to say? Ultimately, ultimately, I'm definitely scared. Obviously, I'm not Yes, good evening, brother. Yes, boss, man. How are you doing? Yeah, what is your name? George. It's me. Okay, and where do you go? I'm going to Northwest 10, bro. Okay, okay. Crazy traffic, man. It's Boss, man, I'm sorry. I'm just about to get on the phone. Do you get me? Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yo, B, I, I listened to your million voice notes. <laughs> Yo, I'd love to come through, but I'm waved right now. Tell a lie. I don't know what floor you live on. I don't even know the name of your block. And uh, I see your point. I'm saying a lot. I've been thinking about what you said. It's been spinning around in my head. And it's true. I'm a man that only does what he wants to do. And because of that, I'm complacent when it comes to you. Just like your baby father or your kids at school. You give more than you get and it isn't cool. It must be difficult. In fact, let me give you a call. Yo, boss man, where you going? That's, that's brother. You need the A40, brother. Brother, crazy fire on that side. All over the news. Listen, huh? listen, news. Coming from West London, the London Fire Brigade are dealing with a huge fire in a residential tower block in West London. West this is Grenfell Tower, 23, maybe 24 story block of flats in West London. Boss man, turn that down for me. 200 turn it down, boss. Yo, B, what's your block called again? I'm hearing there's a madness in your ends. I don't know, which, I, I can't remember what your block's called. Let me know what block it is, please. As soon as you get this, please get back to me. From episode three, a Grenfell story, and this is from episode two called Popcorn. And just a note, Mandem is slang for a group of people, and Boydem are the police. I never realised your dad was beating up your mum. And that's why you used to cry when people said, suck your mum. I never realised he was struggling to cope taking flights back and forth to smuggle in the coke. I never knew that when he went to jail, he told the police things he wasn't meant to tell. I never knew that was a stain on your family name and that's part of the reason why your mentality changed and all the crazy relationships your big sister had for the same reason you was pissed and sad you missed your dad. I never realised that with him gone, 
that put a whole lot of pressure on your mum's income. So she works more hours, struggles more than ever. Bare responsibility she juggles altogether. Now you're spending more time around your sister's latest boyfriend. He's a big drug dealer and he hates the boy them. Tells you they don't protect communities, they destroy them and true they took your dad away. So you see his point there. Now he's bringing his man them to chill in your mum's house. Always talking money, always bringing his funds up. Your sister's in the living room with her female brethren's, but you stay with a man them because you need male presence. Yeah, he's a gangster, but you're impressed because he's cool. And around this time, we're starting secondary school. Spending cuts in the education sector in the UK have forced more than half of all schools to increase class sizes, urging them to rethink school finance. Harsh budget cuts have also put students with special educational needs and disabilities at risk of being turned away from local schools. Do you remove a teacher? Do you remove a teaching assistant who may be placed there specifically to deal with a child with a particular learning difficulty? Because he brought my mum, so where is he going? Don't bring up my mum and expect me to not bring up your dad, so then he wants to try and hit me. They didn't like that, that he hit me, did they? No. I should have knocked him out. There are more exciting things for them to do elsewhere. Let's be honest, uh, some children can find uh, excitement and, and interest on the streets and in other places, so why come to school? Finally, drills, a musical genre that often gets blamed in the UK for glamorising gang culture and inciting knife attacks and violent crime. Last year, in what was described as a legally unprecedented move, one London drill group called 1011 got banned from releasing or performing music without police permission. This court order gets George wondering how drill could be used for other purposes. Anyway, the man that went jail, their videos were taken down and they got banned from music for three years. Now think about the crime they're accused of. Will silence and then reduce or increase this? Here's my thesis. Changing the use of the music they release is the smoothest way to peace. Think about it. The music creates a space to address the conflict. And after a taste of success, no one wants to be locked in a cell pace and addressed as a convict. You've, you've now got something to lose. Money coming in every month from your views, from your perspective done, from your views. People make what, what they see around them. If you see violence and pain and suffering all around you because you live in a deprived neighbourhood, you're going to make music that is intense, violent and painful. If you've been following this podcast, you'll agree that music has a lot of social value. As artists, we influence people But as people, we don't all plan to. And we don't all plan to become a global brand too. In this thing, there's no guarantees, no foregone conclusions. Our position as musicians is at the crossroads of freedom of speech and social contribution. If my music's reality, then it presents an opportunity. You might use it to challenge me, to represent for my community. But if I'm locked up or I'm silenced, then I'm not in the conversation. You can understand a lot more about the violence if you ask the prison population. Changing the use of the music they release is the smoothest way to peace. Without the youth, how do you engage the streets? You can't speak how a teenager speaks. You're not in a madness three days a week. You can imagine what they're going through, but you can't imagine what they're going through. 
and when they're rapping because they're showing you. This play button, it's no joke. If we couldn't use it to bring you to our world, a lot of us would go broke. And when guys go broke and it ends where they're so dope, then they're back on the roads with no hope. That play button would be so much more powerful if it was used to hold us accountable to the next generation of kids getting kicked out of school. For all of the MPs, judges and lawyers, all of the articles published in Reuters, efforts of private and public employers, stop and search targets, government pointers. Who sees the value in criminal immigrants rapping with typical ignorance? Who thinks they're more than a public annoyance? Who sees their music as anything other than pointless? Their audience. They love and enjoy it. They're playing their stuff in the toilet. This is young people open to influence. Isn't that the group we're all hoping to influence? None of these rappers want their fans to go to jail, but fam, the roads are hell. No one plans to hold it L. What's a man supposed to tell them when there's gangs involved as well? These stories should be put into education and training. Because pushing for better days is the main thing. Some of episode five press play of Have You Heard George's podcast, written by George the Poet and produced by George and Ben Brick. Details of where you can find more to listen to at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. There's so many books out there, but so little time to read them. And how can you find all the best stuff? Backlisted takes forgotten and neglected books that are chosen by a guest and talks about them, reading extracts, putting them into context, basically giving them new life for a modern reader. It's a bit like a clever book club where everyone does all the reading. The show's hosted by Andy Miller, who chronicled his quest to read 50 great books in The Year of Reading Dangerously, and by the publisher and author John Mitchinson, who spent lots of time here in New Zealand growing up. I'll speak to John in just a moment about how they make the podcast and how it's getting people to read and buy more books. First, though, I want to play you a bit, and this is from the episode about Angus Wilson, where guest Dickon Edwards joins Andy and John to talk about the novel Hemlock and After. I think he's talking in the 1960s here, talking about Hemlock and After, and he's talking about how he came to write the book. I was still at the British Museum, and I was, I was by this time in the reading room, which I liked very much. I was the deputy there, and I dealt with all the scholars and their work and so on. And I wanted to write a, a novel. The theme was in my mind greatly. Like all my novels, it was about somebody going back and wondering why their life had gone wrong. And... Uh, I found that I had to write that in four weeks of holiday. We had four weeks holiday and I wrote it in four weeks. And although I think it's not a bad novel, it's rather truncated. It's rather, you know, it's like a baby that isn't quite properly born. And I felt something was going wrong. And I knew also that uh, my work in the museum would grow as I was getting more senior there. And I really thought I've got to choose. It was a hard job because I had no pension, you see. If you're a civil servant, there's no contribution, so you get no pension. And I was then forty. 
55, I suppose. I think so. 1955. No, I was 43. And I uh, resigned. <laughs> and I had 300 pounds in the world. I often wonder how I dared to do it. I went down to a cottage in the country. I'd never lived like that. We had outside loo and everything. However, it, it, luckily, it was a very hot summer and I wrote out of doors. And I always try to write out of doors. I like writing out of doors. I don't feel claustrophobic. That's why I write abroad a lot now. I go in the winter and go to hot places and write. And uh, I wanted also to write a play. It was eventually put on the stage called The Mulberry Bush. And it was, this I saw would take me a long time. And what happened was that the play was a failure, but I then wrote a novel called Anglo-Saxon Attitudes at the same time, which, which was, was a great, great success. success. So it was all right. It turned out Cinderella story, you know. <laughs> I mean, I know that's the long clip, so, but it's so wonderful. I mean, and it's not sped up. No, no, no. He, that's how you talk. I thought I was talking fast. No? No, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. High-pitched, high very fast, very short. Uh, immensely extraordinary hair, everybody says, yes. you know, from from his early... From his <laughs> Mine's going in, in that way, actually. Yeah, that's just me. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, we, we, we've, we should, we'll talk about Hemlock and the plot, but just to say the life, his life, is it's um, a beautifully written life by Margaret Drabble, the good. biography, it is which is, uh, it seems insanely large. Rachel said to me mm. this morning, my God, how... Why is it so big? I said, because, I mean, he lived. The man had an extraordinary life, I think. Codebreaker? Yes. That, that alone is interesting. Well, let's, let's just give you the, the posted the, biography. Yeah. Angus Wilson was born in Becks Hill on Sea in 1913. Uh, part of his childhood was spent in South Africa, and he was then educated at his brother's school in Sussex, Westminster School, then he went to Oxford. Uh, he joined the staff of the British Museum Library in 1937, and he rose uh, to become superintendent of the British Museum reading room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when the Second World War came, he helped towards the safe storage of the British Museum treasures before serving the rest of the war in naval intelligence, which even in 1991, when this was written, you couldn't say where that was. No. Bletchley Park. He yeah. was at Bletchley Park with Alan Turing. He was a great friend of Alan Turing's. Um, they didn't meet and, at the time because there's about 10,000 people employed by yeah. Bletchley Park. They met afterwards, uh, yeah. so mutual friends. And then, and there's a ridiculous story about him at Bletchley Park that he would take all his clothes off and run around the lake. No, nobody's been able to, nobody's been <laughs> able verify, to verify yes. that. And then after the war, he has a. I mean, Bletchley Park, as I've said, we were talking about that story Christmas Day in the workhouse. Yes. It comes over the bureau, as the most awful place to have to live and work. The pressure and the bitching and the. Anyway, he, he so he has a a period of depression and a near breakdown after the end of the Second World War. And it's in this period that he starts to write short stories. The first collection of which, The Wrong Set, is published in 1949. What is the fascinating thing about The Wrong Set? There are two fascinating things about it. Do you know what they are? Go on. It's discovered by Sonia uh, Orwell. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes. Who yes. gives it to Cyril Connolly. Uh, gives it to Cyril Horizon, Connolly. Yes. The second thing is he writes... The eight stories, I think there's eight stories, eight or nine stories in weekend. eight or nine weekends. Yeah. Emerges fully for voices fully formed. Mm -hmm. Short stories don't sell, except these. Yeah. <laughs> they become a best was, selling uh, volume a bit, of short stories. It was. And uh and really, I mean amazing reviews. Even the people like CP Snow who didn't like it. So you got that <coughs> wonderful what, what description. CP Snow. Yeah. Part bizarre, part macabre, part savage. 
part maudlin, there is nothing much like it upon the contemporary scene. It is rather as though a man of acute sensibility felt left out of the human party and was surveying it, half enviously, half contemptuously, from the corner of the room, determined to strip off the comfortable pretenses and show that this party is pretty horrifying after all. Sometimes the effect is too mad to be pleasant, sometimes most moving. No one could deny Mr Wilson's gift. Mm. Now, the wonderful thing about the stories are he then writes a second volume of short stories called Such Darling Dodos. And then, as you just hear him talking about, he writes Hemlock and After. And Hemlock and After is recognisably an expansion on the type of characters you meet in the short stories, as then, in turn, Anglo-Saxon Attitudes, his next novel, is an expansion, it seems to me, on Hemlock and After. Yeah, the title story of Such Darling Dodos Mm. is almost, you almost feel it's in embryo, the the novels what you feel is into this tiny story there's a whole novel totally realized characters generational conflict very very funny but also very vicious some of backlisted's episode 85 devoted to angus wilson's hemlock and after the show's presented by andy miller and john mitchinson who we heard just then and john told me what the podcast aims to do i guess it came out of a sort of perception generally that in the publishing industry all the attention, energy uh, and, and marketing dollars gets uh, funneled into new books. And yet, paradoxically, when you're sitting around with friends late at night talking about the books that have really moved you and changed you, or, or you're talking with authors about the books that have helped form them, it's almost always old books, you know, classics or books, strange books that have sort of fallen between all the stools. So Andy and I, I suppose independently when we sat down and said, do you think there's an idea for a, for a podcast in this? And we sat down and we each made a list of those books that we thought would be brilliant to talk about. And we decided that for it not to, you know, quickly descend into just two middle-aged blokes <laughs> raving about the things they loved, that the that what we needed to do was to, to, to find guests and get them to, to recommend. And, and rather optimistically, we said, you know what, this will be easy because we, we're pretty well read. We'll probably have read all the books that people recommend. I think I have read fewer than a third, previously had read fewer than a third. We've now, we're now on our 95th episode. So um, it's been a hell of a lot of, I mean, it's been amazing. That's one of the thing, unexpected things about it is for both of us who are, you know, booksellers, publishers, writers, to have discovered all these extraordinary books that people have sort of tucked away and, and wanted to talk about. So it started with that very simple idea, finding old, interesting books and getting guests on and then us re- both reading them. And then we have a, it's a, you know, the show normally lasts about an hour and the meat of that discussion is about that book. And then at the top of the show, Andy and I both, we ask each other what we've been reading that week. So that can be more contemporary stuff. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. We have, I think, nicely complementary tastes. We come out of the culture of the writing, publishing, book selling culture and we were both booksellers for Waterstones back in the late 80s, early 90s. And we used to, we wanted to sort of recapture some of the enthusiasm that we would have in the staff room conversations. So it's not a, it's not a lit crit show. It's not academics talking about literature in an academic way. It's a sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a show really for readers and for sharing passions and enthusiasms. It's, it's, been, it's been, I have to say for me, the most joyous thing. I've ever done, I think. I haven't enjoyed anything as much as the podcast. 
So the term backlisted, I feel like I've heard it before and I feel like it's a, a book that's maybe gone out of print and it is in a catalogue available. What, what does that mean? It's a publishing term. Publishers have a front list, which is the new books that they're selling. And then they have a backlist, which is the old, you know, the kind of the books that, that sell year in, year out. So that was where it came from. It, is the, it was from the backlist that, that we were going to be choosing these books, not from the front list. And it, I guess there was a kind of a slight a slight play on blacklisted as well and the and the the, the logo for the podcast is a sort of a library stamp and it, i think that that idea of you know these dusty books that have been hidden on shelves unremarked on uh, you know get taken down and read and you suddenly realize there are these amazing writers that are every bit as relevant not all of them but i think that's been the great discovery you know when you discover a, a writer like angus wilson who i kind of vaguely was aware of but, you know, the first openly gay novelist writing the, in the 50s and 60s and reading his work now, it's just kind of it's extraordinarily powerful and relevant. And I, I guess that's the, the whole Virago experiment was doing that, going back and finding all these amazing, amazing women writers who, for one reason or another, had fallen out of print or were languishing, you know, in, in, in dusty libraries. And they, they brought them back into into circulation. So. That's that's where the that's where the, the the title comes from. Yeah, it's a really interesting mix of of authors you've got because I think when I first started listening, I I tended to gravitate perhaps towards the names I'd heard, you know, Bruce Chatwin yeah. or Daniel Defoe. Yeah. But the more I listened, I mean, I'd start listening to other writers I I certainly wouldn't have heard of at all. And yeah, you found all these kind of like hidden and unexpected gems in there which actually just made me want to go off and, and read the books you were talking about which I guess at some level has to be the aim is it? Yeah I mean I think you know Andy and I both were we I suppose we both uh, our happy early days were as booksellers and I think you know both we've both been publishers uh, both been writers as well I think wanting to send people towards good stuff is is pretty deeply ingrained and I, I think you know if people, when people say to me I've we get a lot of um, on social media people saying, "Oh, you know, my, here's the pile of my books that I've my to be read pile, heavily influenced by backlisted, or backlisted is costing me a fortune." You know, I, I feel that that's us doing our job well. <laughs> I was listening to one episode, and I think it was the Elizabeth Jenkins one about the tortoise yeah. and the hare, where there were some remarks up front, which I think Foils, which is the famous London bookshop that, that people yeah. here might have gone to visit if they ever went to London, they're saying that there's, in a very real sense, the books that you're featuring on the show are translating into sales of that title. Yeah, quite a few bookshops have got backlisted tables now, which is, you know, really, it's really, it's really exciting for us because obviously it's exactly what you want is for people to go and discover this stuff. And I, I guess it's that feeling... You know, we record it around the kitchen table at, at Unbound in, in our office just on the canal in Islington. And, you know, a lot of people say it feels like, and this is something where I think podcasts are, um, have an edge over radio. They are inclusive. You're allowed to laugh. You know, it, you people, it feels like a really great, like a, a, a book club discussion around a table. People who are in, informed and, you know, know what they're talking about but are also inclusive and, and sharing enthusiasm. And I guess the conversation and the discussion can go as long as it, as it needs to as well. You're not subject to that, oh, you know, you've got two minutes, right, sum it all up now. We were called weirdly meandering in the Times last week, which we took as a map. <laughs> and I think 
kind of we find our way to the end. I mean, it's, there's never a problem with having too little to say. Let's put it that way. Generally, you know, the guests on Backlist that we've just recorded, uh, I think a really, really wonderful episode with Preeti Tanager, who wrote the book We That Are Young as a sort of modern Indian retelling of, uh, set in, in modern India, retelling of King Lear. And she won the uh, a prize, debut prize in, in the UK for that book. It's a brilliant book. But she, she talked about Toni Morrison's Beloved. And we often say that if we could record another hour of the conversation in the pub afterwards, you know, you'd, we'd get two podcasts for the, for the price of one because there's always so much more to say. We do have some basic structural points. We have the, what have you been reading, top of the show. We have the reading the blurb. We have excerpts. We always ask our guests, when did you first, you know, encounter this book? What were you doing? Where, where were you in your life? But the rest of it is kept intentionally loose because I think that's the way that discussions about books tend to go. You know, you, one person sparks up another person. We're not trying to tie up the the ends neatly. We're, we're just really trying to get capture that energy that, that you get when you're, you're talking about things that you, you really, really love. Have you got any books that you are, you know, kind of dream books, dream guests, if you like, that you, you really do want to feature and you're just trying to work out when? Yeah, well, we, we have. You know, we'd love to do Philip Pullman. We'd love to have Hilary Mantel on as a guest. We've done a Hilary Mantel novel. We did her brilliant novel, Beyond Black. And there are still, there are so many books we still uh, haven't done. One of those, is a, which has come up several times in other, uh, other contexts, is Russell Hogan's brilliant novel, Ridley Walker, which is a sort of post-apocalyptic novel that was published in the early 80s. Another is the brilliant book by William Golding, The Inheritors, about a Neanderthal community, their first contact with Homo sapiens, which is one of, I think, one of the most beautiful and powerful novels in English. And we still haven't quite... So we've got things that we want to do, but the, the rules are that it's the guest that has to choose the book. <laughs> so the list of potential novels is very, very long. And it's not just novels. You know, we do do non-fiction. Some of the best podcasts, I think the recent one we did on Peter Goralnik's brilliant, massive biography of... Uh, two-volume biography of Elvis was one of the best, most enjoyable and interesting podcasts we've done. John Mitchinson, one of the hosts of Backlisted. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. (laughs) A sissy, nauseating, a flaming homo. And these aren't even close to the worst things people have said online to the actor and activist Dylan Maron. In conversations with people who hate me, he speaks directly to the people making these kind of remarks. The conversations, well, they certainly don't always go smoothly. There are plenty of awkward, uncomfortable moments that Dylan has to gently steer through. But most episodes end with some kind of a resolution, even if that's only an acknowledgement that each side understands the other one better. Four years ago, Colleen tweeted... I'm not sure I hate any celebrity the way I hate Amanda Palmer. So, of course, Dylan engineered a conversation between Amanda, a musician and artist who you might know from her band The Dresden Dolls, and Colleen to find out how it all happened and what the fallout was. Colleen, this is a kind of impossible question to answer just because <laughs> it's it's hard, but do you think there was an element to Amanda being a woman that kind of enabled you to maybe feel that distaste 
for her more strongly when you wrote this tweet? I I really hate that I'm going to say yes mm. um, because it's not something that I'm proud of and it's not something that I was really conscious of. And I think part of that has to do with how painfully critical I am of myself. Mm. So I think it is a sense of projection mm-hmm. um, of, you know, if I'm going to be this critical and this harsh with how I deal with myself and think about what I've done, well, I don't, I don't want to give someone else a break. Mm-hmm. Like you need to be held to the same standards that I hold myself to. But at the same time, I think I also think, I think there's a bias where I m- maybe oftentimes think women might be more capable mm-hmm. um, at certain situations and in certain places than men are. Um, and especially in places where men have had more power, I think I, I do feel like I have a bias and I have an unfair, it's, it's not fair, essentially. Mm. No, that's, yeah. that's, that's like really fascinating introspection, Colleen. Amanda, do you feel that you do that at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I've been on a introspective learning curve about my own sexism, mm. especially in the last five or 10 years. Mm. And a lot of it is really, I mean, just like Colleen's just started her comment that she hates that the answer is yes. Mm. Some of it just <laughs> makes me so ashamed mm. when I really have to unpack and unearth mm-hmm. some of my thoughts yeah. and some of my patterns. And, you know, and it's just, it's a vicious circle. Mm. And women are so awful to each other. Mm. And I really, I mean, if I look at the pie chart of hate that I've gotten hmm. on the internet, the vast majority of it has come from other women. Hmm. But also, you know, when I look at who I, you know, and especially in the course of my early career, everything that really riled me, you know, the things that upset me, the things that pissed me off, the things that made me jealous, like hmm. the things that brought out my worst, least generous self hmm. – it was all my like f- my f- my feelings of scarcity hmm. and 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 gross competitiveness with other women. Hmm. You know, I was way more upset and jealous of my female peers. You know, the like why does Fiona Apple get that when I don't? Mm-hmm. You know, why why is mm-hmm. you know, why does Regina Spector get to do this and I don't like my peers, my friends. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you know, and as, even as a teenager, like I was really allergic to the women who later would become my my mentors and heroes like mm-hmm. Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a competitive household with an older sister and I think I just really I really just had that like narrow-minded set of scarcity blinders on that celebrating and feeling a sense of abundance around and with other women was not fucking allowed. Mm. It was either me or her. And if she was succeeding, then I wasn't. And if I was succeeding, then she mm-hmm. couldn't. Yeah. And I feel like I was taught to think that way. And actually unpacking that in my 30s. It was like really enlightening and, oh, my God, this is the way I think. But, oh, my God, my whole life has been so f***ed. I've literally walked through my entire life with this really horrific set of sunglasses on. 
And like looking back, did I have any of those feelings about my male counterparts? And no, like Mm. I just didn't. I just wasn't. I just wasn't jealous of Jack White. He yeah. was out there playing his guitar and doing a great job. Like it, and 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 figuring all of that out was just it just made me feel so ashamed mm-hmm. and so gross. But also sitting with it and going, okay, like here's where you're starting. You're starting from here. Mm. This is the only way out is to like pull up this carpet and see the creepy crawlies mm. and like not put the carpet mm-hmm. back down because yeah, they yeah. were. F- and I I still. I have to keep myself in check all the time, every yeah. day when I see these thoughts bubbling into my head. You know, like I was saying with reading this Lena Dunham article yesterday, it was almost like a meditation practice. I was like, you, here you are reading this mm. article. What are you feeling? But why? Mm. And stop and think about it. Don't just have these mindless thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. No, I absolutely that I can relate to that so much in the sense when you mentioned scarcity, it dawned on me that that is a huge element of this. Um, is that I think for a lot of things, especially with career women or women who are in um, fields that are pretty male dominant, um, at least for me, I've had this sense of I want to be I want to be that woman. I want to be the first woman to mm. do it or the the you know, to get the accolade of of having the woman attached to whatever it was that I've accomplished, where Mm. it was like, you know, if other people are meeting metrics and are winning awards and things like that, oh, that's great. But to be the first woman who did this thing or to be one of the very few women who have been able to do this kind of created the sense of competition for me that I didn't realize I had until very recently. And I'm about to go into my thirties. And I think that's going to be a huge part of the next decade for me is, in the same way that Amanda said is unpacking that, Mm. Mm. you know, and that probably is part of the reason that I, I don't look at other male artists who make me uncomfortable with whatever they're performing or whatever they're doing. I don't have this sense of like, Mm. you know, like you, it's like, Oh, you're just weird. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But here's Amanda. And my reaction is completely different. It's like, Oh, great. Okay. We've, we have a few women in this music scene right here, the one that she's a part of, and that's how you're going to present yourself. Like, please don't do that to us Mm. when that's not what's happening at all. Yeah. We just, or it's happening in my head and it's happening in a lot of our heads rather than, right. You know, the reality. Yeah. I think, I think we see the people next to us, the people that we're grouped in with boxed in with, we see them under a closer, an almost more cruel and vicious microscope, a, a really unfair microscope, I think. And I honestly think that's just the system working, right? Like the, I think other yeah. people benefit from marginalized groups um, feeling that there is few seats at the table and they have to fight each other to get those seats. That's the oldest trick in the book. Yeah. And, and that's the old patriarchy trick is – you know, pit all of these women against each other because then they'll never be able to collaborate and get out of there. Colleen and Amanda Palmer on episode 27 of Conversations with People Who Hate Me, created and hosted by Dylan Marin, and that's a Night Vale Presents production. Words to that effect is a brainy show looking at how big ideas enter the popular imagination in our books and films. Zombies, overpopulation, steampunk and imaginary countries are just some of the topics covered by the Irish writer and researcher Connor Reid. 
Here's an episode that grabbed my attention recently. It's all about dinosaurs. I'm Connor Reed, with words to that effect. I was trying to find the book that I was certain must already have been written about dinosaurs in fiction and what they're for. A Tyrannosaurus. Uh, and what colour are dinosaurs? Yellow and blue and red. It's a very big and complicated story. <laughs> It's not nice. If someone calls you a dinosaur, they're not being nice to you. They mean that you're set in your ways, right? That that your views are are unthinkably outdated. That's a triceratops. To understand the dinosaur properly, you have to try and understand cinema and art history and history and paleontology and archaeology and literature. Dinosaur, are you listening to me? Dinosaur... You know, they're always complicated. Even the ones that are appearing in trashy children's comics. Hello, I'm a real dinosaur. Can you talk? <laughs> These are the thoughts of my three-year-old son on the important topic of dinosaurs. And more coherently, those of Dr. Will Tattersdill, who's currently undertaking a major research project on dinosaurs in literature and science. Okay, so uh, I'm Will Tattersdill. I'm Senior Lecturer in Popular Literature at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And I am writing a book about dinosaurs in popular and scientific culture from 1850 to the present day. So why is my son so fascinated with dinosaurs? Why are children's songs and TV shows and films and books and toys and duvets and clothes all populated with dinosaurs? How, I want to know. Did we get from a Victorian anatomist looking at some unusual fossils in 1842 to dinosaur pyjamas for toddlers? Well, the history of dinosaurs has always been about science and storytelling. You can't have a dinosaur without the science, but scientists can't tell their story, create and illustrate and imagine dinosaurs without art and literature. And each generation of scientists and artists, writers and filmmakers, makes dinosaurs perform different cultural work. After all, as Dr. Tattersall points out, without science and literature, there is no dinosaur. They are, to my mind, one of the best ways of thinking about the relationship between literature and science. Because you can't have a dinosaur until you've got both a very, very professionalised scientific environment in which a fossil can be uh, created and, and discovered and understood. Um, but you also need uh, a professionalised cultural imaginary, a mass readership and kind of that popular environment of fantasy and so forth so that people can kind of sustain those images. Um, so I think, you know, without literature and science, there's no dinosaur. But the story of dinosaurs is also one about time. Our conception of dinosaurs, our conception of previous generations' conception of dinosaurs. And then, of course, there's the dinosaurs themselves in their own time. A time so unimaginably, inconceivably distant from our own that it's often impossible to do anything but see ourselves and our world in them. Dinosaurs are for children, but of course that's kind of absurd when you think about it. Dinosaurs are monsters, but quite obviously they're not, they pre-existed. Dinosaurs are in many ways, and in many B-movies, essentially aliens, except they're from our own planet. Dinosaurs are alive, vividly depicted in all our imaginations. Their distinct colours, the sounds they make, what they eat, how they move. Except, of course, that nobody, nobody has ever seen a dinosaur. So let's go back to the beginning. 
Before you can start thinking about dinosaurs, you have to live in a time which understands that creatures can become extinct, that the world is not a place where every creature that has existed has always existed and will always exist. And at the beginning of the 19th century, this is something that the French naturalist Baron Cuvier conclusively proved for the first time. Astonishing to us now that somebody had to come up with that. I I still find it mind-blowing to try and put myself back in a in a in a community of thought where you didn't have that idea extinction and once you've got extinction um these things that were coming out of the earth that had been known about for for centuries millennia in fact but had been thought of in various different ways by people um became understood as as fossils a lot of them most of them are not what we now call dinosaurs there's there's fossil mammals the mammoth in particular but in the collection of the ashmolean museum in oxford there's a lower jaw that's quite interesting it's got some big horrible teeth on it uh nobody knows where quite where it comes from it's it it, uh in terms of how it got into the museum collection but it seems to be from oxfordshire um and a chap called william buckland who's a very famous geologist of the day gives this thing the name megalosaurus with cuvier's blessing in 1824. At this stage, though, the the word dinosaur didn't actually exist yet. It would take another scientist to start joining the dots. If you've ever been to the amazing Natural History Museum in London, you've probably seen the grand white marble statue of Charles Darwin. It's at the centre of the stairs in this huge cathedral-like entrance hall. What you may not have realised is that this statue was only placed here in 2009. That was the anniversary of Darwin's On the Origin of Species. And it replaced a statue of another scientist, one who was actually a bitter rival of Darwin's. Richard Owen was one of the most renowned scientists of the 19th century, and he's perhaps best remembered today as the founder of the Natural History Museum, hence the statue. But uh, decades before that, uh, he was an anatomist and he was uh, working at the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, And he takes Buckland's megalosaur and puts it together with two other... uh, fossils that are known at that time, the Iguanodon of Gideon Mantell, and another animal called Hyliosaurus. Um, and he notices something that those animals have in common, and he says we need a new word to describe these things, and that's dinosaur. So, for the first time, in January 1842, dinosaurs came into existence. Except, of course, they'd been dead for 65 million years. And this is the beginning of our complicated relationship with dinosaurs and time. We're dealing simultaneously here with a human history and a, and a deep time natural history. Um, and we're, we're, we're slipping between those two things so quickly that it's, it's almost seamless. It's almost impossible to spot the moments where I stop talking about famous Victorian gentlemen and start talking about animals that romped around many millennia before humanity existed. We humans are really bad at thinking in vast timescales. We can handle centuries and maybe millennia, but geological time, eons, eras, epochs, not so much. There's a common thought experiment, which is to think of the Earth's history, so that's just under 4.6 billion years, as one single calendar year. So the Earth forms on January the 1st. We get the first life in late February and rocks in early March. And then it's mid-July, when we get the first cells with nuclei. But then we have to wait until early December, until insects, amphibians and reptiles finally emerge. Dinosaurs arrive on December the 13th, just before 9pm. And then, at 10am the next morning, mammals arrive. On the 26th of December, 13 days after they arrived, the dinosaurs go extinct. 
And then finally on December 31st, at 11.48pm, so 12 minutes before the present, we arrive, Homo sapiens. Hello. So all of humanity has existed for 12 minutes in this calendar year of the age of the Earth. It still completely destroys my mind to try and imagine the amounts of time that we're talking about here. Um, and in terms of, you know, on the scale of the history of the Earth, the dinosaurs are really not that long ago. Um, but humanity is such a recent affair. Words to that effect and some of a recent episode called Dinosaurs, Paleontology to Pyjamas, produced and presented by Connor Reed. And that's about it from me for now, as well as words to that effect. This week we've been listening to Have You Heard George's Podcast, Backlisted and Conversations with People Who Hate Me. The Podcast Hour will be back next week, and if you hear something good or have a show you'd like to recommend in the meantime, then do please let me know about it at pods at rnz.co.nz or on Twitter at rnz Podcast Hour. Finally, from me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening, and enjoy the rest of the long weekend. Bye now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.